welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Well, good morning again. Man, it is so good to see you guys. We're going to be in Luke 15, if you want to turn there this morning. Luke 15. Of course, it is Easter morning, one of the most exciting days to be a Christian. We celebrate Christmas when Jesus was born, and then we celebrate Easter when he died. But, you know, not really. It didn't last very long. But I'm so glad that you guys are here to join us for Easter. And we have chosen to take Easter as a day to launch a brand new series called Oxymoronic Faith. Now, you may be sitting out there thinking, oh, Brian, I didn't come to hear a new series. I came to hear the Easter story, right? Like, I need to know about how Jesus ate with his disciples and how Judas betrayed him. I like the part where Peter cut somebody's ear off. That's the Easter story to me. And then they they take him to a kangaroo court trial and they crucify him. And he's all like, it is finished and dies. And then three days later, he comes back to death. Brian, that's Easter. And, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. That, that is the story of Easter. But, but what I want to focus on this morning and, and with this new series is, why does that matter? Why do we celebrate all of that? Because this, this is more than a fairy tale to us. This, this means something for our individual lives. And so we're starting this new series, Oxymoronic Faith. And that's a big word, and I can see on some of your faces, you're not sure about that big word. Like some of you are trying to have this blank expression on your face because you don't want me to know that you don't know what I'm talking about, and you want to look kind of mad in case I'm saying something bad, and kind of happy in case I'm saying something good too. But, but let me tell you where this word comes from, and I'll have to take you all the way back to 11th grade AP English class with Miss Moore. Some of you in here were in there with me. You remember that. We were in there together. And AP classes are a class that, that smart kids think. And, and me being an 11th grader, I thought, well, I'm smart. You know, I was real humble in high school. I'm smart. I'm smarter than most of the people in my grade. I'll take this AP advanced placement class, and, and I'm going to be one of the smart kids. And let me just be clear. I didn't belong in that class with all these smart kids, but I took it anyway. And one of the parts of, of this class is that we learn these big, huge literary words that are uh, useless, right? Like you never use them for any other purpose unless you're around smart people and you want them to think that you're smart. Like, yes, the alliteration context of that was superfluous. Like, like nobody knows what that means. Nobody uses those words, but we had to learn them. And, and we learned words like alliteration, Alliteration is, is when you have the same sound starting all of your words. Peter Popper picked a peck of pickled peppers. We learned words like onomatopoeia. That, that, that's when you have a word that makes a sound like boom or, or zoom or zap or bang. You know, think like the old Batman movies where they pop up those words up there. We learned words like that and words like oxymoron. And I'll never forget how I learned oxymoron as Miss Moore was a genius. She used something called a jigsaw method. And instead of taking time to go over all of these words with us, she assigned each student in the class a word and said, you teach it. You teach one word to the class. And, and you want to guess what mine was? 
your guess is as good as mine because I don't remember mine. But I do remember the word that Laura came up with. One of my classmates named Laura, she came up with the word, or she had the word assigned to her, oxymoron. And this word is, uh, means a phrase of words that don't go together. Two, two things that are opposites, but we use them as a phrase. So, so phrases like deafening silence, that, that doesn't quite go together. A, a sound that's so loud that it's deafening, but it's also silent. Words like the, the Great Depression, some of you were there. It wasn't great, I hear. I don't know. I've studied history. Words, words like alone together. My favorite one, pretty ugly. And words like skinny Baptist, things that just don't really match with each other, right? That, that's what we learned in this word. And she, and she had this excellent way of describing the word oxymoron to us, and I have never forgot it. She drew on the board. I've got a picture coming up. She broke the word up into to three different pieces to describe what an oxymoron was and remind us that it's, it's two things that don't go together. So she broke it up into ox, e, and moron. Some of you see where this is going already. So she got up there and she describes what an ox is to us. Obviously the word ox, we all know. The ox are the things that pull the wagons down the Oregon Trail. Did you guys know that an ox is just a regular cow that's been taught to work? I didn't know that till this week. So I learned something this week, even if you didn't. So she takes this, this imagery of this huge mus muscular ox and she puts it up on the board and says, okay, so we've got an ox on one side of the equation. And then at this time, we were all in Spanish. So we'd all learned the new Spanish word for and, which is spelt with a English Y. That's all and is in Spanish. And it's pronounced neat, E. So you've got ox, E, an ox, and a moron. Now, now, she needed some way to describe moron to us in a way that we would remember, in a way that made sense. The same way that she had described ox and the same way that she had described E, she needed to describe for the word moron. And, and, and lucky for her, <laughs> she had just broke up with her boyfriend the previous week. And I have this feeling that she wasn't over it just yet. And so she says, and a moron, Dave. Okay? And so she then goes into graphic detail about what would happen if you took her ex-boyfriend Dave and put him in a cage with an ox. And she enjoyed it just a little bit too much telling us about that. And she ended it in saying, by saying, see, an ox and a moron don't belong together. And an oxymoron are two things that don't belong together. And as I look into our Bible, and as I got ready for this new series and I was praying over, over what to, to look at, I realized something about our faith is everything about our Bible and everything about our faith is two things that don't go together. Could you not describe Christians, could you not describe Christians as sanctified sinners? The, the word sanctified means to be set apart, to be holy, the process of becoming holy, and yet sinners is the exact opposite of that, but yet here we are as Christians, if we are followers of Christ and we are sanctified sinners. Could you not describe Christianity as a bunch of redeemed rebels, people who rebel against God and yet he bought us back? We're in conflict with him, but he owns us. That's an oxymoron. Those two things don't go together. And in the kingdom of God, we have adored addicts, forgiven felons, adopted adulterers, Loved liars, chosen charlatans, beloved blasphemers. And what we see out of all of these is God's reaction to our actions does not match the actions that we've lived. These things don't go together. They are an oxymoron. And this is the story of Easter. The story of Easter is not to pick a day every year just to retell the facts of the story. The story of Easter is that we live a life remembering that we do not deserve Jesus. That we should not go with him but somehow we do. 
Our first take-home truth is this, is that our status with God does not match the lives that we have lived. Our status with God does not match the lives that we have lived. This is a crazy concept, and it's hard to believe. Sometimes we don't get it. I think everybody in here has at one time or another tried to earn God's love. If I do enough good things, if I go to church enough, if I love enough people, then one day, one day God will love me. And even as people who should know better, even as people who should know better, we sometimes fall into that. Excuse me. You ever get something caught in your throat in front of a whole group of people? When you're doing really good, Thank God's trying to humble me this morning. I was getting too excited. Okay, here we go. Moving forward. So, even as people who understand this, sometimes we forget. And the Bible, and Jesus in particular, he rejects this notion that, that we could earn his love. That we're anything other than horrible in and of ourselves. That, that we could be good in any way. And in Luke 15, Jesus describes this. He's talking to a group of religious leaders and, and they don't get it either. He's trying to express to them that, that he is God and that God's love is available for everybody. And they, they just don't seem to click. They don't understand what Jesus is getting at. And so Jesus tells them this parable. He tells them this story to make his point clear. If you've got your Bibles, we're in Luke 15. I'm gonna read verses 11 through 13. This is, this is Jesus speaking. And he said, a certain man had two sons. This is Jesus telling us a story. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Raise your hand if you've heard this story before. It's a good story. I, I love this story. It's one of the, the most known stories in the Bible. But today we want to break it down and we want to look at it through the lens of the culture of that time and see if we can understand maybe just a little deeper what this means. So we're introduced at the beginning of the story to two characters. We're introduced to the father and the son. And the context of the story tells us that this is a, a rich family, a family that is very well off, that these guys are doing pretty good. And the son goes to the father and he says... Dad, where my money at? Give me my inheritance. And the inheritance is, is what you get when somebody related to you dies. And he says, but dad, I want it now. Now we need to understand that this was written in Jewish culture. And Jewish culture was governed by God's laws, specifically the Ten Commandments. And one of those commandments is honor your father and mother. And so in this culture and in this context, for a son to come be this brazen to his parents and say, Dad, give me my inheritance now was unheard of. Modern day, it's probably another Tuesday for most people raising teenagers. But, but back then, this is unheard of. People did not talk to their fathers that particular way. You never spoke to an elder that way. And what makes it even worse is the way he demands it. What he's actually saying to his dad is he's saying, I wish you were dead so that I could have my money. That's what this boy comes to his father and says, I wish you were dead so that I could have your money. Now, the correct cultural response at this time and what the people hearing this story for the first time during when Jesus was telling it originally, the correct cultural response was for the father to rear back and slap his son. Say, I, you don't talk to me that way. How dare you ask for an inheritance? But, but what the father does is different. The father takes all of his possessions and he begins to sell them off one by one. 
And, and then he comes back to his son and he hands him this, this lump sum of money and says, here, here's what you ask for. Unheard of at this time. And this would have brought great disgrace to the father. People would have looked at him and goes, well, he must have been a horrible dad if his son would dare talk to him that way. He didn't raise him right. He didn't discipline him enough. He's a horrible father. I can't believe that he lets his children boss him around. He's supposed to be the head of the household. Did you see he just gave him that pile of money? He sold all of his sheep. He sold all of his donkeys. He sold some of his land to give his son that money so that his son could have the money. And of course, there's the self-righteous people sitting in the back going, well, if that was my son, and they do, you know, go down the list of things that they would have said. And as the son leaves, he goes to a distant country, the Bible tells us, a far country, a, a faraway place. To understand the significance of this and what the people hearing it for the first time would have said, we need to understand about the Jewish people. Is going all the way back to Abraham. God came to Abraham and he made him a promise. He said, your people will be my people. Your descendants will be my people. I will make them a great nation. And then you fast forward to the story in Exodus when God brings those people out of Egypt and he gives them a land literally called the promised land, a promise that he gave them. He gave them a place to live that we now call Israel. And this son who grew up in this heritage as a Jew, he decides he is going to leave that place that God has given them. This is not just a rejection of family. This is a rejection of God. It's a rejection of his relationship with God. When he goes off to live in a distant country, he went to live with the Gentiles. He went to live in places that worshiped pagan gods and he would have taken part of that. He walked away from everything that God had given him to go with his enemies. And he wastes his money while we're there. The word riotous that you probably have in your Bible, this is probably the way you've heard it, it means prodigal. And, and that just simply means to be wild and wasteful. This might have been another story if the son had been disrespectful and then he took his money and he invested it wisely in a bank and he made a life for himself. But he takes the money and he goes and he lives a party lifestyle. He goes out drinking. He gambles it away. He uses it chasing women until there is nothing left. Wasted. And what makes it worse is not just that he wasted money, it's that he wasted his father's life's earnings. This was his dad's work. The, what his father had dedicated his whole life to was amassing this wealth, and, and the son takes it in just a, a little bit of time, and he wastes it. As Jesus tells this story, there would have been an audible gasp from the crowd. <gasps> he talked to his father that way? <gasps> to a distant country? <gasps> he, he wasted all of the money? And they would have been infuriated at this son. To put it in the context of our culture, I've got a picture coming up here. Some of you may remember this. This is a similar story that maybe relates to us a little bit more. Picture coming up here. This is, this is Huda Mathana. And you may remember her. She was born in New Jersey, daughter of a diplomat. They, they later moved after he quit his diplomat post, later moved and she was raised in America. And, and in her late teen years, she became seduced by radical Islamic teachings that she found online to the point where she started to identify with terrorist groups across the world. And at 20 years old, in 2014, she left her life in America and she moved to Syria to join ISIS. She left America to join the enemies of America. There she was married to one of the ISIS fighters. He was killed promptly after that. She married another ISIS fighter that had a child with him. He was also killed and you might ask yourselves, how, how did she get here? How did she get enough money as a 20-year-old to up and move her whole life to Syria, to go join a terrorist group? How did she find them? And this is how she financed her trip to Syria. 
she took her college funds that her parents had put money into all of their life and she liquidated it for cash to go join the enemies of America. Now, I want to be clear. Our, our purpose here, and I don't want you to take away that we're going to sit here and judge her because she later figured out that she made a mistake and has tried to pull out of that life. But the purpose here is, is in a post-9-11 world, we can understand how shocking this story is to us, that somebody would leave America to go support not just a different culture, but our enemies. And when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, this is the story that he's telling it is a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter like her. What kind of a person does this to their own family? And what do they deserve? Nothing good. They haven't earned anything good, any goodwill with their family this way. And so as people listen to the story, they were waiting. They were waiting for the punishment to drop. Our next take-home truth is the son earns punishment with the life he has lived. And if you're sitting here and you're angry, what kind of a son talks to a parent that way? What kind of a son wastes a life's living like that? You're about to get your satisfaction. Here in the next scripture, let's read verses 14 through 19. And when he had spent all, that means he's out of money, he's done, he's got rid of all the money, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy servants. And so if you like Justice. If you like the satisfaction of knowing that people get what they deserve, you should love this story. About the time he runs out of money, a famine falls over the land. And, and let me be clear, I know some of you grew up in the Great Depression era, but nobody in this room has ever lived in the kind of famine that the Bible describes when it describes famine. Famine is the reason that Jacob moved his family to Egypt in the book of Genesis, because there was no food. It wasn't just that, that, hey, there's better food. There was no food, and he moved to Egypt where there was food. In 2 Kings, it describes the story of two ladies during a famine, and they were so hungry, they made a pact. We'll kill my son today and eat him, and we'll kill your son tomorrow and eat him. That was the pact. That's how hungry people were. And so when Jesus describes famine, the people listening to this would understand, this is desperate times. And they can sit there and judgmentally think he gets what he deserves. He's wasted all he had. He had all of this money, money that most of us would never have. He could have done whatever he wanted to. And he blew it on drinking and gambling and chasing women. And, and he deserves it. In order to keep himself alive, he goes to a man who obviously would have been wealthy, said, I need a job. And the, and the man gives him a job. Why don't you go live at the pig pen and keep, take care of them? Another audible gasp from the crowd. <gasps> pigs. Jewish people this time had clean and unclean animals and to the very bottom of their totem pole of things that were the worst of the worst were pigs. And now this son has went from being rich, a high status of elevated, being wealthy, and now he lives in the muddy, dirty place with the pigs. How many of you have ever had pigs? Anybody? They smell awesome, don't they? It's just something to be around, to, to be around pigs that smell awesome. And he went from everything that he had to living with the pigs. He was so hungry, he said he would have ate the slop that he was 
uh, offering the pigs, but it wasn't fit for human consumption. And we, and we get satisfaction out of that. That's what you get when you rebel against your parents. Some of you parents are poking your kids right now. It's like, listen, this is what you get when you rebel against your parents. That's what you get when you make dumb choices. That's what you deserve. And see, what we forget is that when Jesus tells this story, it's not just some made-up son. Jesus is talking about me. When Jesus describes the son, he's, he's talking about you. Those of us that have, have lived our lives wasting the gifts that God has given us, rebelling against him. The son is a picture of how God sees us, rebellious, living in a distant land. And so the son comes up with a plan. He realizes, you know, my dad's got a lot of money and he won't take me back, but at least there's food there. He comes up with this speech and he practices this speech and he begins to decide, I'm gonna go home. And we see the son coming back broken and humbled. He comes back seeking the lowest position. He's no longer demanding of his dad. Dad, give me what's mine. He's saying, dad, would you, would you let me be a servant? Dad, would you hire me to the lowest position in your household so that I can have food? And we have these questions of, how will he be received when he comes home? Remember, the, the father is now the town joke. People have spent weeks, months, or years laughing at him because of how his rebellious son left. He took his dad's wealth and ran off with it. How will the dad, how will the father take him when he comes back? Will he be mad? Will he be astounded that he lost everything? Will it be a father who says, I, I, I told you so. You deserve this. And as we continue through the story, we see a reaction from the father that doesn't quite match the actions of the son. Let's read verses 20 through 24. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be married. So the son begins to make his way home. He's practicing this speech, dad. Mm. Dad, can I come home? No, that's not right. Dad, dad, would, would you, can I? Oh, that doesn't right. And he finally settles on this very humble speech. And I love this, that as the son is coming in, in verse 20, my favorite word in the Bible, it's but. He's coming home, but the father saw him at a distance. The word but means something is not what you're expecting is coming up. Something different than what you want to happen is coming up. Something oxymoronic is about to happen. And the father sees him coming and he runs down the road to his son. Understand this, that the running is a very important part of the story. Dignified men did not run. Dignified men had no reason to be in a hurry. Servants ran. And so the father sees his son afar off and he decides to go to him. And so he lifts up his robe and he shows the world his legs, another undignified thing. And I imagine they shined bright in that sun. You guys know it's like getting short season now. And you put that pair of shorts on for the first time of the year and you could land a plane with the shine coming off your shiny white legs. You guys know what I'm talking about? The father lifts up his, his, his rope and he's running down the hill, bare legs just flying. Everybody's seeing, considered completely inappropriate. And he runs to his son because he's in a hurry. 
why, why, is this, why is the father in a hurry? I, I think maybe there's a degree of excitement there. But there's also a degree of protection. See, the son would have known what he was coming home to. And, and in Jewish culture, for somebody who lived the way the prodigal son lived, for somebody who wasted their money, who was disrespectful to their father, there was a ceremony called the kazaza. And as a person would try to come back to that village, if they married outside of their clan, if they left the country, this, this ceremony would be performed upon them. And the village elders would come out and they would profess his sins to everybody and they would take a clay pot and they say, you did this and you did that. And here's where you messed up. And as this pot is, so are you. And then the son would be left staring at this shattered version of his broken life. Out in front of everybody, performed in public, it says you're cut off. It says this is what you've made of your life. It symbolizes broken relationships that will never be healed. It represents a uselessness that, that can never be overcome. A brokenness that can never be fixed and, and people being done with you forever. And the son would have known he was coming back into this, uh, a wasted pot for a wasted life. And at that moment, it, it was too late. There, there was no restoring him. There was no doing anything. That, that would just be it. That would define his life from that moment on. Imagine if, if we did that here. And imagine yourself in that situation. If, if I pulled you up here on Easter morning and said, guys, this is Brian. Brian's a liar. Brian's an adulterer. Brian is a murderer. And, and I went down the list of all of your deep, dark secrets, everything that you had done wrong in front of everybody that you loved while they all gasped at the things that you did and they looked at you judgmentally. This is what the son is walking back to, and he knows it. And, and so Jesus leaves the people listening to this with this, this scene. As the son walks back into town, having not combed his hair, hadn't shaved in weeks or months, he hadn't eaten, so he's skinning, his robe is smelly, it smells like pigs, it's got rips and tears in it. As he walks back into town, he notices that people start to notice him and he realizes that they recognize me. And so he hangs his head and he practices his speech. Dad, I, I messed up and I'm sorry and I know I can never be your son again, but would you hire me as a servant so I can have some food? As he looks up again, he sees the group is getting bigger. People are actively pointing at him, whispering, People are making a scene that he's walking back in and, and he pulls his robe up around his neck, hoping that that tattered, smelly piece of cloth will hi help hide some of his shame. And he, he just practices his speech one more time. Dad, I'm sorry. I, I messed up and I, I know I could never be your son again. But would you hire me as a servant so that I can have some food? He looks up a final time and he, and he realizes the crowd is amassing around him and and the village elders are walking towards him and they've brought a clay pot. 
And he stops in front of them with tears running down his face. And as they begin to, as they begin to speak, as they begin to read off his sins, he, he hangs his head, sobs, and he practices his speech. Dad, I messed up. Dad, I'm sorry, and I know you would never want me as your son again, but would you please, can I, would you maybe hire me as a servant so that I could have some food? And as the elder lifts the pot over his head, about to pass judgment on the son, all of, of the ramifications of what's happening to him coming down on him, as he faces his punishment, suddenly, suddenly there's the sound of running feet. And his dad pushes his way through the crowd and he spreads his arms open and he grabs him and he hugs him and he kisses him and he cries. And the son tries to say, Dad, I'm sorry, I messed up. But the dad's not listening. He wraps his arms around his son and he tells his servants, quick, quick, go start a party, go get sandals, a ring, and a robe. And with the whole crowd watching, the dad just stands there holding his son. The original language here has the connotation of he, he hovered protectively over his son. And that elder slowly lowers that pot, but just stood there watching while the father holds his son in silence, waiting for the servants to return. What I, what I think is interesting about this story is that in this example, that all of the attention that was put on the son of all the things that he'd done wrong is, is now taken over by the father as he runs to his son and he embraces him. People are no longer thinking about the shame of the son. They're thinking about the shame of the father. Can't believe that he would do this for his son again. Can't believe he would stop this ceremony. But the father doesn't care. He, he just holds his arms around his son quietly while everybody watches. And as the servants come back, they bring to him a pair of sandals. And the father kneels down and he puts sandals on his son's feet. Sandals are a sign of being a family member. Servants didn't wear sandals. They went barefoot. He, he takes a ring and he puts it on his son's finger. It's a symbol of authority of the family. It's like a, a credit card with no limit. This son can go spend all of the family's affairs. And, and he takes the robe, and, and not just a new robe because the old one was smelly. Not just any old robe, he takes a very special robe. He takes his robe, the robe that he would only wear two or three times in a lifetime, maybe to his children's weddings. And he takes this robe that is a symbol of the power's position in society and he puts it on his son. And he, and he says to everybody with him a loud voice, you can break that pot all you want to, but he's not useless, he's not broken, he's not unworthy. I've restored him as a member of my family. I've restored him as my son. You came here this morning for the Easter story. And this is the story of Easter. That, that every last one of us, every last one of us stands on the verge of having punishment put down on us, of being cut off from everything. Every last one of us stands in a place like the sun in this story and there's no escaping and there's no explaining but suddenly there was the sound of running feet as God himself, Jesus Christ came running into our world and he ran to you and he ran to me and he ran to the cross and he held his arms out wide and he hovered over us protectively 
And all of our shame was put on him. All the things that we did wrong, all of our punishment was taken from us and put on him as he died. And he stayed there as people mocked him, as people made fun of him. He hung on that cross for you and me until he yelled, it is finished. And he died. But three days later, guess who comes back? Of his own power, proving that he has the power over sin and death, he walks out of the grave proving to us that he can be trusted with our lives and with our souls. Here's our last take-home truth, and Liv, if you want to start making your way up here. Our last take-home truth is you can become a child of a loving God. Every person in here bears the weight of the mistakes that we've lived. See, this... This is our life, broken because of all the things we've done, broken relationships. We've broken with God, we've rebelled against him, and this is what we deserve. But God came running for you, and and whether or not you think you need him, he came for you. Whether or not you've mocked him, he came for you. And all he asks is that you come home like that son. Father, I've messed up, and I'm sorry. But through the path that Jesus made on a cross, we don't have to ask to become a lowly servant. We can ask him, God, would you make me part of your family? God, would you forgive and restore me? And today, you've got the opportunity. You've got the opportunity to come to know him in that way.